We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be there for a few more weeks still. Uh, today we're in chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 uh, through 12. Uh, and as I, I mentioned last week, we've actually taken the text out of your bulletin and asked that you use the Bibles before you or, or a Bible you bring with you. Uh, if you've got a, a digital one, just press buttons and you'll get there. Uh, but if you've got the paper Bible before you, go ahead and open up right to the middle of the Bible. Typically, that puts you in the book of Psalms. Uh, and then you're going to turn to the right. You'll hit Proverbs, and the book after that is Ecclesiastes, which is where we're going to be today. Uh, this portion uh, of the passage that we're going to be looking at today is actually set up so that there's, there's two bookends that focus on one topic, and the, and the bit in the middle is really um, what we're going to focus on as, as kind of what it's, it's trying to highlight and, and if that gets confusing, if you look in your outline or in your bulletin, there's an outline that'll show you exactly what that looks like. Uh, so we're going to look at both bookends and then come back and look in the middle. Hope that's not too confusing. Um, and, and basically it's this. Uh, death comes to all. Death is absolutely unpredictable. Uh, and so enjoy the gift of life that God has given us. So that's that's the basic outline, if, if you like to begin with that. Uh, and, and again, the assumption here is, is that Solomon is teaching this to, to a group of people, uh, to Israel, uh, on the idea that in general they're not enjoying the gifts of God like they ought to be. That's what pushes him to, to write something like this. So uh, this message is originally for the Israelites, like I mentioned, uh, a few thousand years ago. It's really kind of incredible how needed it is for us uh, as the Christian church in America here in 2015 as well. Um, because honestly, like them, we, we come in here, we, we go through our lives and and, you know, we're anxious about health, about relationships, finances, um, facing death, our future. Uh, we're anxious about just about everything. And that really, really affects the way that we enjoy the life that we are living. So we're going to begin with Ecclesiastes 9. We're going to look at the first nine. We'll read the first nine, and we'll read the rest of it later as we get to it. So follow along, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> but all this I said... I laid it to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so the sinner, and he who swears is as as. He who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the heart of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, the life you have given us under the sun on this planet is short. May we learn from your word today how to respond to the goodness that you have given us uh, for enjoyment. May we be true to our emotions and yet learn to find joy where there is reason to be joyful. Make us feel the quickness at which our lives are passing by and slow down. Lord, we ask simply that you would change us by your word today. 
Amen. On July 4th, 1950, a man named Barney Doyle woke up and he decided he was going to take his, his neighbor's 13-year-old son named Otto Fiag to watch the Brooklyn Dodgers play the New York Giants. It was a game to take place in the Polo Grounds, which was in Manhattan, New York at the time. Barney was a 54-year-old uh, man, and he worked as a freight sorter over in New Jersey. As the two of them made their way down the aisle, uh, down to row C, section 42, which was out in left field, uh, they did what every group of people do when they go to a sporting event. They began to figure out who was going to sit in which seat. They decided who would sit where. Uh, Barney chose to seat in, sit in seat three, uh, while Otto sat in seat four. A few minutes later, as Jackie Robinson was actually warming up with the Dodgers and taking bat batting practice, Doyle, holding his, his scorecard in his hand, turned to actually say something to Otto, and then slumped forward in his chair as blood began to flow from his temple. Mr. Doyle was pronounced dead, uh, and that day no one had any explanation as to what had happened. Later during the autopsy, they discovered that a single bullet, uh, a single bullet had killed him. Uh, yet strangely, in a, a crowd this large, no one had any idea. No one saw a gunman, no one heard a sound, nothing. Uh, eventually, as this went on to figure out what had happened, it was discovered that uh, a 14-year-old boy named Robert Peebles had found a 45 caliber handgun that previous winter in Central Park and had stored it away in, until there was a moment to use it. In the chamber of that gun, one single bullet. Robert held that and in celebration of Independence Day, walked out on the roof of his aunt's apartment and put the gun up in the air and fired it off in celebration. He was up on a bluff that was about a quarter of a mile behind home plate uh, that day. That bullet came to stop in Barney Doyle's brain and killed him instantly. It's one of those bizarre stories that seems like it could never happen, and, and it's morbid. And I, I share it with you, though, because it's a vivid reminder of, of what our text is teaching us today. Namely, that, that death comes to all, and when it comes, it's incredibly unpredictable. It really could come to any of us today, whether you believe that or not. So let's walk through this text today, because I want you to feel the weight of that and, and see what it is Solomon and ultimately God is going to show us to do. Verse 6, as we read a moment ago, says this, But all this I laid to heart. Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. That phrase, all this, all this is, is really pointing back to the previous chapters, 7 and 8, which we've gone through already. Uh, and if you remember, it's, we saw that life was a paradox. That, that bad things often happen to what we might call good people and vice versa. And so he's considering all this, and he's come to this conclusion, uh, which he's explaining to us. And the first thing he says is that the works of man are from the hands of God. See, God is sovereign, even in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment aspects of our lives. And at the end of verse 1, his, his point, that, that's based on what we experience in life, uh, his point is based on this, the tragic events and the, and the death of loved ones and painful things that we might face. And he's saying, based on observing that alone, if you just stood back and observed that alone, you could not tell whether God loved you or hated you. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's tough to preach, but we see it here in the Word, and there's something to appreciate just how honest Solomon is being at this moment. 
Uh, you've likely seen people express it similar ways. Something bad happens to them, and their response is just, God hates me. Uh, sometimes in a joking matter, sometimes in a serious matter. Verses 2 and 3, then, are a series of contrasting types of people. And the reason he does this is to show us that death comes to every person. Uh, even those that we expect, maybe, maybe God's going to give them some... some uh, reprieve from it. And he goes on and listing them out. He says, the righteous and the wicked, uh, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, those who sacrifice and the ones who do not sacrifice, the person who is good and the person who is a sinner, he who swears an oath to God and the one who shuns an oath. So his point is that death comes to all, uh, to those who seek to be good and, and, and those who commit great evil in the same way. Death came to both Bonhoeffer and to Hitler. And for Solomon, this is an absolute outrage, and you can feel it in his writing. Verse 3 has this, this strange statement. It says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And it's just this, this idea of pointing back to Genesis 6-5, where uh, that's before God sends the flood because of all the evil in the world. And, uh, and he says this observation of humans. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. So the flood reset things. But it didn't transform sinful hearts of people. In verses 4 through 6, he's making this point that it's better to be alive than dead. It seems like you wouldn't need to make that point, but, but he does. Um, and, and as part of this is this strange phase, a, a phrase, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. See, in the ancient Near East, this is where Israel was, uh, they didn't have dogs as pets. No one cuddled with dogs. They were thought of as these, these mangy, nasty creatures that you really didn't want anything to do with. It's, it's more like we might think of rats or roaches. You don't invite them into your house and cuddle with those things, hopefully. Um, lions, on the other hand, were esteemed. These are the king of the animal kingdom. Uh, these were the, you know, the greatest animal on earth kind of thought. And he's saying it is better to be a living, despised creature than to be a dead king. Uh, and in verse 6, uh, then in verse 6, he writes this. He says, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever. They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Um, he, he means that with death, their passions are gone. No more. Uh, those passions are of no use to the dead. And after death, we have no place in the world of the living under the sun. Sure, we, we have memories, but we have no place, no part in that. Um, and so now I, I want to keep on, on what we're looking at here and just jump to verses 11 and 12, but really pick up on the same thing. This is the other book I, men I mentioned before. Uh, listen as I follow again. We'll read just 11 first. It says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And his point is, life is unpredictable. He lays out this whole series of events which are unexpected. First, in regards to physical superiority, some of the fastest people end up losing the race because something bizarre happens. Uh, we even saw this in the news last week. The, the fastest runner in the race just before the end decides to celebrate at the last minute, uh, and a slower runner actually passes him because of that celebration just before the finish line beating him. Um, uh, we see it 
all the time. Someone pulls a muscle, something crazy happens, they trip, uh, whatever, anything could happen. Uh, and then says likewise, that, that the same is true with the strongest. Sometimes the strongest loses the battle. You can think of David and Goliath. Goliath should have won that. Everybody would have bet on him, and yet he lost. Uh, the next three examples are in regards to intellectual superiority, bread, riches, and favor. Those are all expected for the wise, for the intelligent, and, and, and those with knowledge. And, and yet the uncertainty of life is that sometimes the intellectually strongest fail miserably. That's just how life happens sometimes. And he sums this all up by saying time and chance happen to them all. Uh, literally, this is saying a, it's a timely accident, or a timely incident. It's what we in our, our, our language, our culture, call an accident. Nobody ever expects the accident. No one plans for that, but they come anyway. Uh, as, as much as we Americans like to believe that, that we are the captains of our own destiny, the truth is that, that God is ultimately steering the ship, and he's pointing this out to us over and over throughout this book, and he has good reason for doing so. Um, verse 12 then uh, applies all of this in the area of, of death. Um, death coming in unexpected times. He writes, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. They're just simple illustrations of the time. Imagine, if you will, simple fish swimming along and suddenly a net surrounds it and that's it. They never see it coming. Uh, the bird caught in a snare, we're not as familiar with this idea, but the way a snare works is it's like a, a noose on the ground uh, that is set up and, and the bird would, would come out and be feeding and eventually start to feel safe around this because no one's around it. And as it continues to feed, eventually it, it's, it's pecking seed and it'll grab some seed from the ground within the noose and suddenly that tightens around its neck. Um, one moment everything's great, the next second that, that bird is caught in the, the snare, life is over. It's like Barney Doyle in 1950, one moment sitting there watching a baseball game, and the next moment life is over. It happens every day in much less crazy ways. Watching TV, then a heart attack. Walking down the road, hit by a car. Eating lunch when a brain aneurysm happens. I, I know it's, it's morbid. And like I said, I, the reason I mention this is, one, because it's true. That's how it happens, how it will happen. Life is fragile. Mine is fragile. Yours is fra fragile. And it really could be over at any moment. And I need you to feel this so that you will understand there, that, that there is this weight behind what Solomon is trying to tell us here. See, in verses 7 through 10, we start to understand why, why he is speaking so morbidly about death and the quickness of it. And, and let's, let's take it just a portion of time. He, he's told us already in this book to, to enjoy life, but never with this sense of urgency. Never with the push that he does here. It's, it's almost like he's shaking our shoulders. You must do this. You must hear me. You must listen to me. And it's, it's laid out in this, this series of imperatives, which which is just a term that means that it's, uh, he's giving uh, one authoritative command after another. Uh, imperatives are typically the things in language where you could put an explanation point at the end of it, uh, and it makes sense. It's like in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a command. Uh, or like the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Uh, in our passage today, though, the imperative, or the words in the imperative mood are, are these. There's five of them. Go eat, drink, 
enjoy, and do. And so those five imperatives become kind of the, the push of what he's talking about here. Uh, and the first three of them show up in verse 7. Uh, let's read that. It says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Go. This is simply a, a wake-up call. Don't just sit around upset that the world is indeed a paradox. Don't just sit around worried that death is coming. That, that's inevitable. You can't change that. And so go. He then quickly moves to, to what it is that we should be doing. Imperatives 2 and 3 say, Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. I think culturally sometimes we get hung up on, on the word wine there. Um, You've got to understand, he's not saying go get drunk. Um, this is not a call to escapism of any sort, of any substance. And, 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 and for part of that, to understand that, you've got to understand that, that wine and bread were just normal meals that they had in Israel. This was just a typical meal that they would have had. Uh, but it doesn't need to be wine. It, it could be a hot cup of coffee or a tea latte or a Dr. Pepper, a uh, craft beer or a cold yuhu for all that matters. It, it could be anything. It, it's really about the enjoyment of, of food and drink. You know, don't rush through meals. Slow down. Taste the flavors. I, honestly, I find that one of the toughest things in the world to do. I, I tend to want to sit down, eat my food, and move on with life. You'd think I would choose healthier options given the way that I eat, but I don't. Um, but that's the struggle, is just slowing down to do that. But think about this. Your tongue, you can feel it in your mouth right now. There are about 10,000 taste buds on your tongue. 10,000. And they get replaced every two, two weeks. Um, 10,000 little receptors that function to translate particles of food into flavors that give your brain a sense of pleasure when, when these flavors have been combined right. And so when you bite into a piece of apple pie um, with ice cream, you taste the sweetness of that filling. Uh, you taste the saltiness of that crust, and, and you can taste the creaminess of that ice cream, and it gives you pleasure. We don't think about that. Because often we eat so fast, we hardly taste it at all. And, and there's, there's no reason that we even need taste buds. I mean, that's part of the point here, what a gift that is. We don't need taste buds because all of our food could be absolutely tasteless and you'd still be getting nutrients from it. And so what you need to see in, in this text is that the taste of food and, and drink is a good gift of our God. A good gift in the way that he has designed us uh, in such a way that we can enjoy the taste of food and the taste of drink. This is absolutely a, a gift of the Lord. Um, you've likely heard the quote from Benjamin Franklin. He was a deist, not a Christian, uh, but a deist, just a general idea that God exists. And, and one of his most famous quotes, you've probably seen it on a t-shirt, says, uh, Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. It's a great quote. looks great on a t-shirt. Um, only thing is, he never actually said it, uh, like most really good quotes. And uh, to be honest, though, he said something similar. And what he said, I found much more interesting. He said, we hear of the conversion of water into wine at the marriage of Cana uh, as of a miracle. But this conversion is, through the goodness of God, made every day before our eyes. Behold the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards and which incorporates itself with the grapes to be changed into wine. A constant proof that God loves us, and he loves to see us happy. Uh, his point is that 
this is an amazing work of God when rain mixes with roots to begin this process that ultimately becomes wine. Um, however, to really understand this, um, verse 7, you've you got to see that the emphasis here is not on the bread or the wine. We tend to want to focus on that. The emphasis is on eating it with joy and drinking it with a merry heart. It's the enjoyment of, of the gift. Again, not gluttony, not drunkenness, not, uh, not anything of that nature, but proper enjoyment of the gift of God. And, and that requires a lifestyle where you intentionally slow down. You know, sit in a chair at a mealtime. Chew your food. Um, let these taste buds do what God has designed them to do, which is to give you pleasure in his good gifts. And, and really, this syncs up with why we exist, because when we enjoy the gift of the giver, that is, God gets the glory. Uh, just like the joy we get when someone enjoys a gift when, when we've given it to them. Uh, you, you've likely even been on the other side of that. You feel the disappointment when you give someone this gift that you've thought hard about, you put a lot into, and they're like, great, thanks. Um, clearly no enjoyment out of it. Uh, the first century church, uh, they understood this point well. We, we often want to view them as some sort of aesthetics that, um, that we're not into it. But, but the truth is, they weren't uh, ascetic monks. They were fellowshipping saints. And we see this in Acts 2, 46 through 47. And, and day by day, attending the temple together. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. May, may we receive our food with glad and generous hearts as well. Um, and, and now that last phrase in verse 7, this, for God has already approved what you do. Sounds like a blank check, doesn't it? Um, that is not a blank check. God has not already approved of your gluttony. God has not already approved of your drunkenness or anything else that God has revealed in his scripture to be sin. There is a distinct difference between enjoying the pleasures of God and abusing God's gifts by using them outside of their gifts or outside of their design. And one of the ways that we can keep this in proper order is, is this. Enjoying the gifts of God properly will not require you to repent afterwards. To thank God, to praise God, to enjoy God, yes, but not repentance. Uh, and so what, what does this mean then? If not a blank check, what does it mean that God has already approved of what we do? And, and really, this is, this is hearkening back to the garden. Where, you know, we were created with a capacity uh, and a purpose to enjoy all of God's good creation. And, and, and so he approves of our eating and our drinking, um, <clears throat> enjoying of the things that he has given us. These taste buds that we have that I mentioned to you before, that's not a result of the fall. It's part of God's good creation, his perfect creation. Um, it's part of our original design. Uh, let's continue. Verse 8, which says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These are simply uh, symbols of, of purity, symbols of joy. Psalm 45, 7 speaks of God anointing the, the heads of the right, righteous with, with the oil of gladness. Uh, Psalm 23, we're very familiar with that. Uh, you might remember the phrase, you anoint my head with oil. Um, these are blessings. Uh, enjoy the blessings of our Heavenly Father. Verse 9 continues with this point saying, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in, in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Uh, this is the sixth time in Ecclesiastes. This book we've been working, chapter 9, but the sixth time that he has been explicitly told us, 
enjoy your life. It's clearly an important thing that he wants to get across to us. And here he mentions, uh, here he includes your life with your wife whom you love. Uh, both marriage and life, both of those, are gifts that are under the sun enjoyments. Um, enjoyments for this life that we live right now. At, at death, we, we know in Christ that eternal life will continue, that there is something wonderful for us. But um, at, when this life is over, many of these things are, are set to end. And In Matthew twenty two thirty, Jesus makes clear that marriage is limited to the life we now live. Uh, to be honest, I have no idea what, what Laura and I's relationship is going to look like in eternity. I, I don't know because it's not revealed in Scripture. Uh, but I know that this day, uh, April 19, 2015, that this day is a gift of God that I can enjoy with her. Uh, a gift that I ought to enjoy with her. Uh, and it's worth pointing out here, uh, King Solomon, you remember he had, what, a thousand women in his life, um, 700 wives, three in concubines, maybe it was the opposite, um, and, and many struggles as, in those relationships, and, and here he is as, as he's looking back and giving this wisdom that he encourages us to enjoy life not with your many spouses, but with your one spouse. Uh, we even begin to see him looking through that, seeing that, uh, uh, and I say this, it doesn't mean marriage is easy, uh, it is an imperative though. It is a strong reminder that you should have joy in marriage. Seek that joy. That is a gift of God. Uh, that companionship through life, the good times, the difficult times, that sexual relationship, that is a gift of God. Enjoy that. Uh, and so if God has given you a marriage relationship, enjoy it. If, if not, or not yet, uh, enjoy what gifts he has given you. Um, carefully you don't get hung up on waiting to enjoy life for this moment. Uh, verse 10 then speaks of our work. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, uh, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol uh, to which you are going. When you are dead, you will not be doing the same work that you have to do in this life. Uh, we must remember that, that work is hard because of the fall. Uh, but... Uh, Work is also a gift of God that existed before the fall. Um, so whatever you do, do it with all your might. Do it well. And, and all this is really just a, a call to enjoy the life that God has given us. And, and in the gospel, in the gospel, we only find these imperatives to be made stronger. Because while, while Jesus has revealed to us that death uh, is the end of our life under the sun, death is also the start of eternal life. And the truth uh, of that should give us even greater boldness to enjoy godly pleasures in this life today, um, this, this thing we call life. Uh, and he provides, uh, when we look in the, in the New Testament, we see that God provides these gifts. He, uh, he provides fish and, and, and bread for the masses to eat. He turns water not only into wine, but, but fine wine, the best wine, uh, at a wedding as, as people are celebrating. Uh, he frees them, uh, many who are demon-possessed. He frees us from our sin. He makes us his actual children, which gives us the joy of, of so many of his gifts that we receive as his children. And, and I want to remind you that on the, the one side, when we don't enjoy God's gifts, we, we dishonor him as the giver. And, and also to warn us on the other side, we must remember that we're called to enjoy the bread, not worship it. 
Uh, we're called to enjoy the wine, not worship the wine. We are called to enjoy our spouses, not worship our spouses. We are called to enjoy all of God's gifts, not worship those gifts. And, and, and there's one exception to that rule, and that being when God gives himself as the gift. In John 6, 48 through 51, uh, Jesus compares himself to bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, there is no greater gift that God has given us than himself. I think it should be no surprise then uh, to us that the first two things that are listed here as gifts of God are also the, the elements of the, the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The bread, of course, representing the body of Christ and the blood representing the blood poured out for us. All that, uh, in all of this, so that Christ could purify for himself a bride. That's us. Uh, the church of Christ is the bride of Christ. Uh, in Ephesians 2.8, this, this sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross to, to wash away our sins is, is called the gift of God. And one of the effects of having received that gift through faith is that we are now able to enjoy the rest of God's creation in ways that bring glory to Him. And, and part of that is because we know Him personally. Uh, we know who the giver is, and, and that's why we pray at meals. Uh, I know a lot of you probably grew up doing that and have no idea why you pray at meals. Uh, I honestly hate it when someone says we have to pray first. You don't have to. Uh, you get to. It's an acknowledgement that God has given us this gift, that the food on the table before us is, is not our right to have, but something that God has given us to enjoy. Um, and so that's why we pray at meals. Um, but we also, you know, want to acknowledge the giver. Uh, often we waste our days with meaningless pursuits. And I want you to think about this because it's pretty universal across all of us. We hold stupid grudges. We have dumb arguments, frustrations, bitterness. We get angry at broken or, or lost possessions. We're anxious over things that are really outside of our control anyway. Uh, often we're just in so much of a rush um, that we don't slow down to enjoy the gifts of God. If, if that's true of you, if that's your life, that needs to change. I mean, that's the weight of a text like this. See, Christian, every day is an opportunity to bring God glory by enjoying his gifts within the boundaries that he has set for us. And, and as a, a, Americans, on the flip side, I, I think I need to mention this, is that often we feel guilty for what we have. Surely I'm not the only one who feels that way. Uh, and so let me remind you that you didn't choose to be born into the culture you live in. None of you were born into this that way. Um, and so don't feel guilty about what God has given you. Yes, use those blessings to bless others. That's important. But don't feel guilty for the blessings that God has given you. Because God in his word nowhere commands you to feel guilty for the blessings he's given you. He, he does, however, in our text today and many other places, command you to enjoy them. Are you doing that? So let me remind you that, that death is certain. And death may come 70 years from now from you, or it could come today. I want you to listen to the word of God in response to this and enjoy the life that God has given you while you still have it. As we come to the end, I want to read you something 
Um, a guy named Zach Eswine, I know I've quoted him a lot lately. His writings have really been helpful for me personally, and I think it will be for you. Uh, and he wrote something in response to this. It's set up like a conversation between um, God and, and us. And, and we offer these excuses, and he's using the words from our text today as God's response to us. And he writes this. He says, We needn't wonder if God approves of our paying attention to our little portion and our ordinary lot with him. We needn't ask if he approves. And this is our counter. But we are all going to die, we counter. I know. Make a sandwich, cook a fish, the preacher responds. But the sky is falling, we shout. I know. Have some tea. Enjoy this wine with me, he says. God is here. But everything is meaningless. I know. Go ahead and wash your clothes. But injustice racks the broken world. I know. Go ahead and take a bath or clean your face when you can. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. God has not quit. But what do you mean? Nothing that satisfies us. It's all vanity. I know. Listen to your wife's voice. Hold her hand. Wash the dishes together. Plan your life. Learn to make wondrous love. Work redemptively through your pains together. Help the kids. Do not deny how much you love her. Embrace this. But death is coming. I know. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. God is here. But wisdom gets us no favors here. Yes, go ahead and start your day. But life isn't fair. I know. The grief is terrible, but try to do what you love as, as you're able. Do it passionately with all your heart, even if you're stuck doing some work that's beneath your dreams. Still, God can meet you there. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. See, our response that we should have to this text today is really that we, we stop complaining, we, we stop rushing, and we slow down and we enjoy the life that God has given us, the, the gifts that he's given us. Um, to that end, I think it would we'd do well to, to memorize Psalm 118.24. I mean that. Uh, take the time to, to memorize this simple verse and, and speak it to yourself in the morning. Speak it to your spouse, to your children, to your roommates. Speak it into whatever context you find fitting. Uh, if you know it with me, I'd like us to say it together. If not, you can just listen. But it's, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have made us finite beings with short lives. Give us wisdom to discern the difference between worldliness and enjoying your good gifts with joyful hearts. Lord, give us patience to eat and to drink to relate and to work at a pace where we can taste and see that you are good, so very good. Thank you for the capacity for enjoyment in this life and eternity forever. In the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.